So at this time, I'd like to invite you to turn or to thumb your way to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be in verses 22 through 23. I love really good movies that have a plot twist. You watch the whole movie, and then at the end, you realize there's a reason that you can see dead people. Or you watch a movie and you realize that you don't actually live in a colonial era, fundamentalist, penal colony. (laughs) If you're smelling what I'm stepping in. I like that movies have a twist. And this morning, I've got a bit of a twist on our sermon series. As we conclude this first series on finding yourself. And this morning, we get a chance to talk ecclesiology, which is a $15 word that means a study or a theology of the church. There's a lot packed in these two verses for us this morning as we turn our attention to the text. When you get to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, give me an oh yeah. If you need a minute, say hold up, brother. Fantastic. Verse 22 reads, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I'm going to read that again. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And before considering it, we should pray. So let's pray. Father, I feel within myself a desire to make my own name great and ask you by the power of your spirit to kill that desire. I find within myself a heart that would seek the praises of other image bearers over and against the praises that you sing through your word. Father, would you crucify that within me? And with a circumcised heart be the result and the response of such a work by your spirit. For the reality this morning is Lord, If you do not, by your spirit, grant us illumination and journey with us, I am a blind man leading other blind people. We are ruined. But if by your grace you would, fill what is lacking within me and fill what is missing within us, wherein together we might have a dialogical and doxological endeavor this morning that as you are speaking to me and I to your people, that you would speak to your people by your spirit. So would you bless the reading, the hearing, and the doing of your word this morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we ask. Amen. Amen. Some of you know this and some of you do not, but generationally I find myself smashed in between Gen Z And Gen Y, I'm just barely a millennial, but not quite a Gen Zer. I'm a digital native. 
I grew up most of my adolescent years using a rotary phone. And some of the most dulcet and glorious tones I ever heard was the sound of the dial-up internet right after it came to our house in the mid-90s. Growing up in my house, I was the remote control. Um, I was also the designated bunny ear turner. And I knew what particular type of hanger would make the best bunny ears to get the best reception. Hallelujah. (laughs) Being a child of the 80s and the 90s, there were certain cultural artifacts that still mean a lot to me. One of those was a 1986 to 1996 anime cartoon named Voltron, wherein there were five individual units and fighters who would combine to make one indefatigable warrior named Voltron. Five independent units coming together to form one fighting unit. A few years later, that same idea would be ripped as Power Rangers came to the scene. And many of us watched with quite hilarious sentiment as many of our classmates were sent home trying to imitate the red and the black Power Rangers. But all five of these Power Rangers would come together to form one unified fighting vessel named the Megazord. And in terrible choreographed fighting, (laughs) we witnessed five individuals becoming one. And I'd be remiss if I did not speak to that cartoon that made all of us desire to be planeteers. Where there were five elemental aspects to create one particular individual. There was earth, there was wind, there was fire, there was water, and there was heart. Go planet. And with our powers combined, Captain Planet, he's the hero going to take pollution down to zero. Five individuals combining their magical rings to form one warrior to go and fight on behalf of preserving the environment for us. Now, you might have to forgive me if I'm showing my age a bit, and perhaps I might switch the category of illustration, moving away from 80s and 90s cartoons and into Cajun cuisine. It is on mornings like today that some of you who are from God's country might think to yourself when there's a chill in the air, that could only mean one thing, and that is gumbo. (laughs) And I asked uh, one of our staff members for a recipe this week, and she couldn't get back to me because she said, we don't actually have a recipe that's written down. That's how I know they're incredible cooks. Because you have 37 different ingredients to throw in a pot, and you let it stew for a while, and out comes this one beautiful thing. You've got andouille sausage, you've got corn, you've got tomatoes. As my grandfather says, you've got okra. <laughs> and it ain't gumbo unless you got some okra up in that. You got some Old Bay and you got all these other seasonings that creates this roux 
that is beautiful and delicious, all of these individual ingredients coming together to form one beautiful thing. I'm still in my introduction, but I'm almost done. As I was studying this week, I was reminded of a band that I used to listen to in college named Flyleaf. It's a heavy metal rock Christian band. I like the screaming stuff. You can't put this black man in a box. They have a particular song entitled Beautiful Bride. And I would like to read the first verse of that song. Unified diversity functioning as one body, every part encouraged by the other, no one independent of another, your irreplaceable, indispensable, incredible, incredible, beautiful bride. I wonder if you know what the entity is in which I'm referencing with all six of these different introductory comments the church. It is the church. And in particular, what we have before us in verses 22 and 23 are ecclesiastical gemstones, where we find certain indelible truths that give us a picture of the church and allow us to see ourselves and how we are anchored within the work of Jesus on our behalf. I've got three points for us this morning, three points, and then I'm going to get out of your hair. The first point that we see in verse 22 is a Latin phrase that we'll unpack here in a moment. It is Christus Victor. Christus Victor. Toward the end of this pericope that we're studying in verses 15 through 21, we see this triumphant Christ. A victorious Christ who he himself has gone through the life and the death and the resurrection And then in verse 20, we see that God has highly exalted him to highly in heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule, all authority. And then in verse 22, we get a particular wrinkle of the particular nature of Christ's victory. And he put all things under his feet. Now, if you were in the ancient Near East and you came up across another king or warlord, Suppose that you were the conquering king or warlord. One of the things that you would require of the losing or defeated king is that he come to your throne room, that he kneels. And one of the things that you might do if you were king is you might sit in your throne and put your feet on his neck. You might actually use his very body as a footstool simply to humiliate and to shame this king into seeing and knowing you who thought you were once great, you who thought you were once worthy of praise, you who commanded armies, you are now my footstool. The picture of Christ as victor here in the beginning of verse 22 is a totally dominant Jesus Christ. And when we see all things being placed under his feet, when we see Christ himself having the foot on his neck of all things, this is in reference to every scourge and every plague that threatens our joy as believers. It is every enemy, it is every principality, it is every power. It is everything from depression and anxiety all the way to Satan himself is in subject to the dominance of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if you feel that yet, but what I mean to say is everything has their 
neck covered with the feet of Jesus. Now, you might ask, well, what about us? What about us? If, if Christ Jesus is Lord of all, what about us? And yes, friends, there will be a day when we will stand before the throne of God and we will bow and we will declare that Christ Jesus is Lord. And where all of those who never place their fealty and allegiance with Jesus will have their feet, Jesus's feet placed on our necks. Instead of the dominant conquering king, what we will find is the Jesus who is the lifter of our heads. That is the promise that's found to us in the victorious work of Christ Jesus. Frank Thielman, who is my Greek professor at Decent Divinity School, says this in his commentary on Ephesians. The basic point was clear enough. The messianic king whom God has made victorious over all cosmic forces ranged against his people is united with the church, which because of this union is also victorious over these evil forces. Paul says that he put all things under his feet, that all things are subject to his reign and he gave him as head of all things to the church. Second point this morning, what we find here concerning the church is we find a church victorious. There are four primary categories when we talk ecclesiology in, in systematic terms. One, you've got the visible church, the church that's visible. That is all of us gathered here. That's all of those that we can see. The church visible is comprised of those who might show up at church and in the church visible, just like in this room, not everyone who's here is submitted wholly to the things of Jesus. Not everyone here is given their entire faith and fealty to the person and work of Christ. There are some here who have yet to do that. And yet, if we're just looking around the room, it would appear that all of us are on the same team, that all of us are on the church, are the church. The church visible are those gathered all around the world, and it's what we can see, but God doesn't just look on the outward parts. Where does he look? He looks at the heart. And only by going to the heart can God know only who is the true church, namely the invisible church. It is the church that is present that we ourselves cannot see because we don't know people's hearts. And yet it is the church that is the true church the true children of God. The invisible church might be those that we would look upon and we might question their salvation. We might look at them and question whether or not they're part of the club, only to find out that they were sold out to the things of the Lord by faith in the finished work of Christ and they themselves will be present. But a third category of church is the church victorious. It is the church radiant. It is the church fully redeemed. It is the church fully sanctified. The church victorious is the triumphant church right now dwelling in the presence of God. In Hebrews, we find this cloud of many, many witnesses and we might call it the hall of faith, but the only person who is responsible for their faith is the one who has kept it, namely God himself. In this cloud of many witnesses, those who've gone on before, those throughout the scriptures, if, they, if we could hear them speak, what they might say to us is, if you only knew how beautiful that he is, if you could only see what we could see and how beautiful he is, all the things that you think matter actually don't. All the things that you're wrapped up in don't actually matter compared to the surpassing beauty of this Christ Jesus, the church victorious. 
is the church that every spot, every wrinkle, and every blemish has been washed clean. It is the church where every scar of martyrdom is a badge of honor. It is a church where every single hardship and suffering has created a cocktail for celestial celebration in the throne room of God. It is a church that is basking in the very real presence of victory because of who Christ Jesus is. It is the church that if we could hear them say, if you could only see, then you would know what to fight for. Louis Burkhoff, that... That 19th century theologian says the following, and I love how he refers to and describes the church victorious. He says, there the sword is exchanged for the palm of victory. The battle cries are turned into songs of triumph and the cross is replaced by the crown. The strife is over, the battle is won, and the saints reign with Christ forever and ever. Paul says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Christus victor leads to the church victorious. That's what we have to look forward to. And yet, there's a problem. We don't often experience that church, this side of heaven, do we? We are, as it were, stuck in between two advents. The first advent was the incarnation of Jesus as God wrapped himself in flesh and became a sacrifice for us. Advent means coming. So the first coming of Christ was in his birth. The second coming of Christ will be when he comes to install his kingdom on the earth. We are stuck in between two advents. Very similarly, when my family went to Disney last year, my kids loved the ride Everest. It just happened to have the longest maze to actually get to the ride. It's a busy day. I get in the line. I get halfway in and I realize I've got to use the little boy's room. I'm too far deep to walk out back, but I still have this ride that's ahead of me that's a little far down the line. I'm, I'm stuck. I'm in between two realities. The church victorious is a reality for where we're headed But concerning where we currently are, third point this morning, we are part of the church militant. Part of the problem with the church is that we don't always experience the church as she should be. For all the things that the church should be, loving, kind, gracious, the church in many ways should be a hospital to those who are hurting, It should be a staging ground for mission, and it should be a family. Instead, what we find is a lack of love and a lack of grace. Words spoken behind the backs of other image bearers that we would never say to their face, and words that we say to their face that we would never say behind their back. Church hurt is very real. I think we all have an expectation that the church would be better and rise to a higher occasion than she's been in particular the last 10 years and really for the last 2000. I think it's one of the reasons why the world outside looks at us and it says, well, if they of all people can't look like Jesus, then what's the point? All of us have been hurt by church and this church, friends, us. 
We are a collection of saints who meet together, but for far too long we've been individuals meeting together, doing our own thing, and not part of a collective body. And furthermore, the very real hurt and pain that's here, even experienced by me these last six months, is enough to make anyone look at the church and say, why bother? When I look at verse 23, it puts so many things into context for me because I have an expectation of the church that she doesn't always meet. If you were to read the first clause of verse 23, you would say that Christ has been put as the head over all things, namely his church, which is his what? His body. Follow me. That the church is the body of Christ. Now, we, we love that terminology. That's a very common metaphor. But in order to fully understand this, you've got to understand the very next clause, which is the fullness of him. Now, wait, 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 wait. wait. Now, we've got to stop. Let, let, let's back up a little bit. The church, which is his body, which is the fullness of him. I wonder if you remember when Jesus encounters Saul on the road to Damascus and Jesus blinds him with light and begins to speak to Saul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting whom? Me. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those Christians? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus synonymizes himself with the actual body of believers meeting as the church because they are one and the same. I wonder if you remember when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 begins to give us a litany of what it means to be part of the body. He says some of y'all are eyeballs and some of y'all are big toes and some of y'all are pinky toes and some of y'all are hands. Some of y'all are elbows and some of y'all are wrists. Some of y'all are kneecaps. Individually, we are insufficient to be a body. We are parts of a body. We are members of one body. And whose body do we make up? We make up the body of Christ. Now, now that's a really beautiful imagery until you understand the very next clause, which is the fullness of him. So, so if the body of Christ is the fullness of Christ, then we got to do some more work. Because if you were to go to Colossians chapter 1 and you were to read the high Christology beginning in verse 15, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him and through him and for him all things were made, and all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. You've got Yahweh, the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in the person of Christ. The fullness of God in the fullness of Christ, and the fullness of Christ is the fullness of his church, which means that if the church is the body of Christ, here's the point, hear me, this is really important. You can throw that slide up there. You cannot experience the fullness of Christ apart from the church. You can't do it. You can't experience the fullness of Christ apart from the church. You cannot Lone Ranger, your Christian life. And you cannot live on an island separate from the church in your Christian life. It would be like that old movie, Into the Wild, where you would go to Alaska trying and looking for independence only to find your lonely death by yourself. 
There is something to the Christian life that was meant to be experienced in community with one another. The church itself is a hospital, it's staging ground, it's dinner table, it's family, and all of that was meant to be experienced in the church. Now, let me, let me illustrate this for a moment. Um, I've never been on a cruise, and I have zero plans to go on one. I refuse to get on a body of water that's larger than something I can drink. If I can't touch or see the bottom, your boy is not getting in. But in February of 2013, the Carnival Triumph pulled out from the, po the port of Mobile on a set sail for the Caribbean islands. And there in the Caribbean, they were going to tour and uh, sail to several different islands in the Caribbean. On the second day, a fire caught uh, in one of the engine rooms and it knocked out the engines to the cruise ship. When the engines went out, the power went out. When the power went out, the food started going bad. When the food started going bad, the water went out. And after the water went out and the bilge pumps couldn't pump out sewage and refine it, sewage started to back up through the toilets on the ship. So that there was human excrement swimming on decks at the ship and inside of people's rooms. They were out at sea for four days with no food, with no water, with no air conditioning in the middle of the tropics until they were towed to the port of Mobile a few mere days later. And some of y'all still want to get on these cruise ships. <laughs> that ship to this day is affectionately known as the poop cruise. <laughs> and when it comes to a cruise ship, I've never been on a cruise ship. But when I was in the fourth grade, we took a trip to Mobile and we actually did go to a battleship. We went and saw the USS Alabama, this destroyer with its engine rooms, with its missile silos, with its command posts, with its barracks. And this thing was no frills. It was stripped down. Only that which was essential was allowed to remain on this ship. And I, I, as I'm writing the sermon, I'm remembering the words of a former pastor here at our church who used the illustration of the difference between a cruise ship and a battleship almost 25, 30 years ago. A cruise ship says, hey, y'all, come to us. Let us entertain you. We got your food. We got some drinks. We got some entertainment. We got the casinos. We got the club for the kids. I don't really know what that is. I just hear they got clubs for kids. We got, we got six different types of pools. We got water slide. We got ice cream. We will come <clears throat> and wait on you hand and foot. The experience of a cruise ship is all about comfort. And the massive difference between a cruise ship and a battleship stems and centers on one thing, and that is mission. You don't bring anything to the battleship unless it is essential for the mission. And every man on that ship is looking out for the man next to him. And every woman on that ship is looking out for the woman next to her. No one individualizes themselves. They're part of something larger. And here in the body of Christ, as the body, if you're ahead and you want to be ahead by yourself, then you can be ahead by yourself with no body. You can be as smart as you want to be and as fruitless as those thoughts that are ringing in your head. And if you want to be a hand and you want to do, 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 and you want to be a hand separate, the body of Christ, then please, by all means, draw a ton of attention to yourself apart from the Christ and realize how far people run from you when a disembodied hand starts running up on them. <laughs> Hello, Adam's family. 
The point of the church and the reason why Christ is the fullness of the church is that we cannot experience the fullness of Christ apart from this unified diversity, mutually encouraging, unified body that centers on one mission, which is the exaltation and the promulgation of the glory of God. And any church that exists for the sake of a celebrity or a church that exists for the sake of itself, that is a church that is not on mission. That is a church that's a cruise ship. If I put it another way, here's the twist. All this series, we've been looking at all of these promises that are ours in Christ Jesus, all of these promises. And if you were to go back into chapter one and read all of these promises, In verse three, we find that we are blessed. In verse four, we've been chosen in him, that we're holy and blameless. In verse five, we've been adopted to himself as children. In verse seven, we've got redemption. We've got forgiveness. We've got the riches of his grace, which he lavishes upon us. In verse 10, we find that we're united with God in Christ. In verse 11, that we have been predestined to an inheritance that we ourselves are to the praise of his glory. For us, we are the ones who've been guaranteed an inheritance. And then in verse 15, it starts to get good as Paul prays for this church in Ephesus. And then in verse 17, uh, he's praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see the glory of God, to know what is the hope to which he's called us. We have a hope and that we ourselves are God's inheritance. And this inheritance is guaranteed because of Christ, who not only died, but he rose with all power in his hand, victorious, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, so that we ourselves might also be seated in those places. And here's the twist. All those things are true only insofar as we ourselves are connected in the church. Those are not individual promises, friends. Those are corporate promises. Every last one in the the chapter one, every last promise here, if we're preaching through the plurals, is a consequence of what it means to be part of the church. Now, there are some people here who are saying, well, Jason, what about that one Christian who's stuck on a desert island somewhere and they don't have a church? To which I would say it's always terrible to reason from an exception. You should never do that. And praise God for virtual church because the church is right on their, on their iPhone. Amen. And some might say, well, Jason, you just don't know my history with church. I've just been hurt by church. I've gone through a lot of church and people in church have hurt me. And here's the reality. Whether you know it or not, you are woefully limited. You are not perfect. You will hurt people. You will disappoint people. No other person in this building will disappoint as many people as I will. Why? I am woefully limited. You will hurt people. You will say things intentionally and unintentionally that hurt people's feelings, that scar people. There is sin here in this church. There is a lack of love in this church. And some of y'all are not very gracious or kind. But the reality is, collectively, we were never meant to be. Otherwise, we wouldn't need Jesus. The point is for all of us in our brokenness to point each other to the one who won't disappoint, to the one who won't let us down, to the one who has done all the work, to the one who is redeeming us, and to the one who is victorious, whether we live like it now or not. Amen. 
the reality, thank you, brother, the reality of the matter is, and this is the truth, the promises in Christ are realized only within the bride of Christ. I want to say this with all the pastoral sensitivity in my heart. You cannot say that you love Jesus and hate his church. They are one in the same. You cannot say that you love me and that you hate Courtney. Because to hate her is to hate me. We are one flesh. And this becomes even more difficult in the multi-ethnic church, friends. Because we are so different. And we have so many opinions. Do y'all know y'all have so many opinions? (laughs) So many strong opinions. (laughs) But the reality is that none of us can experience the fullness of Christ without one another. And let me say this. I didn't say this in the first service, but I feel the Spirit of God pressing this into me. It's why theology matters. But more than theology, the fruit of our theology matters. And in our fellowship, friends, if the fruit of our theology doesn't make us more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more good, more faithful, more gentle, increasing in self-control, if our theology actually leads us to be more fearful, and if our theology actually leads us to be more suspicious of our neighbor, it's likely something wrong with our theology. And if our understanding of the church leads us to see ourselves as, hey, I'm just going to do my thing. That person doesn't need me. I'm not essential here, to which I would say, you are attempting to usurp the very body of Christ, who is the fullness of us. Every man, every woman, every child experiencing Jesus in his fullness because of the hands and the feet of our neighbor. In short, Whether you know it or not, we are the most elaborate version of Voltron that has ever existed. (laughs) Whether you know it or not, we are the most beautiful Megazord from Power Rangers that has ever existed. Whether you know it or not, we are the gumbo. That the flavor ain't got just right yet, but it will when we stand victorious with Jesus, but we keep working. We keep adding different ingredients. We keep turning the heat up and down. We throw in a few more bay leaves and some old bay, and we throw in something, and we, we know that, oh, uh, Sister Margaret done snuck something in here that ain't supposed to be in here. Like putting raisins in the potato salad. We ain't doing that. But we're on a journey toward a place where we end up looking like the body of Christ because friends, Jesus will not come back to inherit a harem. He will inherit a bride. He is not coming to inherit a a corporate uh, uh, version of individuality. No, he's coming to realize and to inherit an individualized, corporatized version of himself. How can Christ be divided unless his people are not centered upon his person and work And so help me God, if we'll be anything here, it will be all about the person and the work of Christ Jesus that builds this fellowship. Ain't nothing else to that. I'm out of time. Oh, I could. The body of Christ is beautiful. Because it is the one entity 
on the planet that in a culture that is so individualized and separate by screens, it's the one entity that forces us to look other human beings in the eye and see our own sin. And it forces us to care for all of those who are present and not just our own needs. What Paul wants to write in order to get us to chapter two to show us how we are unified vertically to God in verses one through 10 and then unified together in verses 11 through the rest of the chapters, he wants us to see that all the promises of Christ are for you. They're just not only for you. And so my hope and my goal is that we might actually live out and be all that the church is called to be. The hands and the feet of Jesus. The joy and the love and the kindness and the grace and the humility to accept our differences and live as one despite those differences. Let's pray. At the end of every sermon, we like to take some time to respond to the word of the Lord in prayer. Hearing from his word and the ways in which the spirit of God would have us to apply it. So let's take a moment here to hear from the Lord and how he would ask us to apply this word. Father, I'm thinking of these first century Christians who were hearing this word, oppressed under the thumb and the hand of Rome, persecuted and exiled into places of modern day Turkey. And the word that their king was victorious and reigning would spur them on to faithfulness and care for one another when no one else would. And so Jesus, I pray that it would do the same in us, that this word would spur us on to faithfulness that at some point this week, you would allow us to get a glimpse of what the saints who've gone before us see, which is you and your radiant, majestic splendor. And so as we come to this meal this morning, it is a meal of remembrance and anticipation. It is a meal that we will not always eat and drink, but one that we eat and drink now in anticipation of the day that is to come. So Jesus, would you renew our faith? Would you fix our eyes upon you and stir our affections for your purposes? We pray and ask these things in the name of Christ and for his sake, amen.